Okay, after the bittersweet experience, after the bittersweet experience, another message is to come from the little book. And that message has to do with the measuring of the heavenly temple. You know, some people think that uh, the idea of uh, the investigative judgment after 1844 uh, came from Ellen White. No way. After John eats the book, and it's sweet in the mouth and bitter in the stomach, John is told, and of course he represents God's people, to prophesy again, and then he's told to measure the temple. The question is, what, what is the prophesying again? What does it have to do with? What does the word again mean? Let me ask you, has a prophecy come out of this book once before? Yeah, in the disappointment, right? The eating of the book. We notice that it has to do with assimilating the message and preaching the message. It caused the disappointment. So what is John told? He says you have to prophesy again. From where? From the little book. So it, does the judgment our message need to be proclaimed after the disappointment? Sure. It says you must prophesy again. And what does that prophesying again have to do with? with measuring the temple. Because John is told to what? To measure the temple. Is that what happened after 1844? Did God call a people now to proclaim the hour of judgment has come? Of course. And what does that message involve? Does it involve measuring the temple? Yes. And of course we still have to study what it means to measure the temple and which temple it's talking about. Okay, now, so after the bittersweet experience, another message is to come from the little book, and that message has to do with the measuring of the heavenly temple. It is impossible to prophesy again unless you have done it at least once before. The phraseology of Revelation 10:11 is similar to that of the first angel's message in Revelation 14, verse 6. Uh, do you notice that it says here in Revelation... If you go with me, Revelation 10, in verse 11. He said to me, you must prophesy again. And the New King James says about. I think the better translation is to. You must prophesy again to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Where in Revelation does it pick up on that? In the first angel's message where it says, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of judgment has come. And that message goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So the prophesying again is found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Now the question is, why does Revelation 10 verse 11 add kings? Because that's not in Revelation 14, 6. Well, the fact is uh, that in Revelation 17 verses 10 and 12, the Bible tells us that the harlot is going to fornicate with the kings of the earth. The question is, must these kings be warned about fornicating with the harlot? Of course. So there's a new dimension now. The, the word kings is added because the kings are going to ally themselves with the harlot to impose uh, uh, not buying and selling and to impose the death decree. And by the way, one of the most interesting ways of studying end time events is to study the end time events of Jesus. 
Do you know that we're going to repeat from beginning to end the, uh, the experience of Jesus, particularly the last six months of his life? We're going to repeat that story all over again as his people. Uh, let, me get, let me just uh, touch on one point to give you an idea. Uh, why did the Jews want Jesus to, uh, to die? Was it because he had violated any civil, civil laws of Rome? No. Had Jesus, did they ever accuse him of committing adultery or killing or stealing? No. Jesus had broken no civil laws of Rome. All of the accusations had to do with the first table of the law. They accused him of making himself God. They accused him of taking the name of the Lord God in vain when he called himself the I Am. They accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. In other words, all of the accusations had to do with the first table of the law. And they wanted to condemn Jesus to death, but they had a problem. That is that as a church they could not condemn Jesus to death. They needed the help of the state. And so after they had a religious trial of Jesus, which is the Inquisition, the word Inquisition comes from inquire, after they do the Inquisition, and by the way, that the, Jesus had a religious trial before he had a civil trial. They found Jesus guilty of death. The church did. But then they go to Pilate and they say, Pilate, this man is an evildoer. And Pilate says, well, what has he done wrong? Well, he said that he could, uh, you know, he could destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And Pilate says, oh yeah, well, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> Show me where he's broken, broken some law of Rome. Don't come to me with religious accusations. And then they say, according to our law, he must die because he made himself the son of God. By the way, did Pilate recognize that there are two kingdoms? Yeah, because he said, you take him and judge him according to your law. So Pilate had the idea of two kingdoms clearer than they did. But they were intent on getting Jesus destroyed. And so they appealed to the civil power and even though Pilate three times said that Jesus was, was not guilty he condemned an innocent, innocent man to death. Do you know why? For two reasons. Number one, to save his political position because the Jews intimidated him. He said, they said, if you let this man go you are not Caesar's friend, Caesar's going to take away your position. Have you ever read where Owen White says that the legislators, in order to gain votes, popular support of the people, will condemn God's people even though they know that God's people aren't guilty at the end of time? And there's a second reason, she says. It was because the priests, and this is in Mark chapter 15, the priests and the elders moved upon the people to cry out to Pilate, to slay Jesus. The dangerous figures were the ministers of the day that moved upon the people for the people to pressure the civil power in order to slay Christ. And by the way, just a few months, see this, there's a whole pattern. Well, the best way to study end time events is to study Jesus' end time events. 
it's, it's amazing. It illustrates the prophecies of Revelation, only it doesn't use symbols. It presents end time events in story form. You know, you have that story six months before Jesus, um, before Jesus died. Uh, he resurrected Lazarus. And the Sanhedrin got together. It was, an, it was a homeland security meeting. <laughs> and Caiaphas says, if we let this man live, the Romans will come and they will take away our place and our nation. This man has to die for national security's sake. Is that argument going to be used again? Yes. Hmm. You better believe it is. And it says that that day they made their decision that they were going to condemn him to death. That was several months before Jesus actually died. And it's interesting that the reason why they wanted to kill him is because everybody was following Jesus. Is that going to happen at the end of time? Multitudes coming out of the churches? Absolutely. You know something else that's interesting? There were many denominations in Christ's day, and they hated each other. But when it came to slaying Jesus, they all came together. And you know, you, the, all, all Jewish laws of due process were violated in the case of Christ. They violated their own laws of due process. In their minds, he was guilty before they even started the trial. Is that going to be true at the end of time? Yes. It most certainly is going to be true all over again. And so, uh, you know, there's, the, there's this pattern of end time events. And of course, it was the holiness of Jesus that awakened the wrath of the devil. And it will be the holiness of God's people Amen. through the power of God that will awaken the wrath of the powers of the world at the end of time. And by the way, was the Sabbath a big controversy back then? The biggest controversy that Jesus had with the religious leaders was over the Sabbath. There's only one difference between then and now. At that time, Jesus preached against the wrong way, and we will preach against the wrong day. But the conflict will be over the Sabbath. It will be one of the main things. Okay, let's get back to the material. By the way, uh, in the book, Prophecy, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I developed this theme of Jesus' end-time events. And um, it's a fascinating study because, you know, people, people don't really, uh, many times, are not able to grasp the meaning of the symbols of Revelation. But, you know, what the Gospels do is they illustrate the symbols in story form. So it makes it, it, makes it so that even a child uh, can understand it. Okay, now, uh, let's go to the next point. Questions about Revelation 11.1. 1. you have that in your material? Okay, which temple is being spoken of in this verse where it says, measure the temple? And what does it mean to measure the temple and those who worship in the temple? Well, um, the interesting thing is that the word for temple here is the Greek word naos. As I was mentioning yesterday, there are two words for temple in the New Testament, two prim primary words. One is the word hieron, which refers to the entire temple complex. The other word is naos, which refers to the inner shrine or to the most holy place of the sanctuary. 
And uh, I want to read two verses to illustrate that point so that we have it clear that the 15 times in Revelation that the, that the word temple appears, it's nows and it means the most holy place. So which temple was going to be measured after the great disappointment and uh, where were people going to be worshiping who were going to be measuring, measured? The most holy place. Does that square with Adventist theology? It most certainly does. It shows that there was going to be a measuring of the heavenly temple and those who worship in the heavenly most holy place beginning after the disappointment. Now, notice what we find in um, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. We're looking at the word naos. Let's see where the naos is. Let's see where the, where the temple, this temple is. It's just not the huge co temple complex. It says, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. It's identical word. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So what is inside the temple, inside the naos? The ark of the covenant. Let me ask you, in what apartment was the ark of the covenant? in the most holy place. Let's go to one other passage, Revelation 15, and this one is particularly important, Revelation chapter 15 and verse 5, speaking about the close of probation. It says there, after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. The tabernacle is what? The sanctuary. the sanctuary. What is the temple of the tabernacle? The most holy place. There's a distinction. Do you see the distinction here? The temple of the tabernacle of testimony. The expression tabernacle of testimony in the Old Testament refers to what? It refers to the entire sanctuary complex. But this is the temple of the sanctuary complex. And then out of the temple come the seven angels with the seven plagues. Uh, by the way, do you, do you know where, what the, the foundation is for the idea of the plagues coming out of the most holy place? It's because people have trampled on God's law. Do you remember when the Philistines took the, the Ark of the Covenant captive? <laughs> what did the Ark start pouring out on them? Plagues. That's right. Why were they? Why, why did this happen? Because they were uncircumcised. Because they were wicked. And so the plagues came from the ark. Actually from the Lord, through the ark. And so when probation closes, those who have trampled on God's law, what's going to come from the most holy place? Plagues. Now, uh, and so then it speaks about uh, the angels coming out with the seven last plagues. The temple is filled with smoke. Which temple is filled with smoke here? Where it says the temple was filled with smoke and no one could enter the temple. The most holy place. This is speaking about the moment when Jesus finishes His work in the most holy place. Revelation eleven nineteen is speaking about the time when He begins His work in the most holy place. Now, yes, that is the altar that's mentioned here. Uh, 
Well, actually, there's two times when the temple, when the glory of God filled the temple. One was when the temple was inaugurated, when it began. The, glo the glory says the glory of God filled the temple, and also, according to this, when the sanctuary service closes, the temple will be filled. But it's really the glory of God that is filling the temple because probation is closed. Jesus, at this point, is taking over His kingdom. His kingdom is already established. You know, sometimes we think of kingdom in, in geographical terms. But the kingdom has to do with the people that belong to the kingdom of Jesus. Okay, his kingdom are his people. When he's determined in the judgment or revealed who his people are, his kingdom is complete. So even before he comes to this earth, his kingdom is complete. And then of course he comes and he gives the kingdom to his people. Okay, now notice this interesting comment by um, Albert Barnes. No, actually this is Seiss's uh, commentary, uh, The Apocalypse. Notice, notice uh, that even non-Adventists sometimes come up with, uh, with gems of truth. It says here, The connection between what concludes the one, that is Revelation 10, and what begins the other, Revelation 11, appears to be as close as it well could be. In other words, the concluding statement of Revelation 10 where it says you must prophesy again. And the first statement of Revelation 11 that says measure the temple, he's saying that these are very closely linked. In fact, in Revelation there are many places where the chapter division is in the wrong place. Many, many places. This is one of them. Revelation 11 verse 1 belongs to chapter 10. Why is that? Because after the disappointment, he, he's told, prophesy again, and then he's told what? Measure the temple and those who worship therein. That's a continuation of chapter 10. And of course, another uh, place where the division perhaps isn't as good as it should be is at the end of Revelation 13, where it speaks about the beast and his image, and those who worship the beast and his image, and the mark of the beast, and, you know, when you get to the end of chapter 13, you say, wow, you know, people weren't able to buy and sell. A death decree was given against God's people. Man, wasn't there anybody that was faithful to God? So when you get to chapter 14, one, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, it speaks about the 144,000 standing victorious at Mount Zion. They were the ones who resisted the beast and his image and the mark and the number of his name. So verses 1 through 5 are the climax to chapter 13. And then, of course, you begin at verse 6 with the three angels' messages. See, the book of Revelation is not in chronological order. How can God's people be in heaven on Mount Zion in verses 1 to 5 if the three angels' messages aren't proclaimed until verse 6? Are you with me? Yeah. So what's happening here? God is simply, God is simply the, Revelation 14, 1 through 5 is the climax and then, in verse 6, it goes back, God's going to say, now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how those people got there. There were three angels' messages that were proclaimed. Are you following me? Yeah. And, so, and so, you know, you, uh, sometimes the chapter, another place where the chapter division is uh, problematic is in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. That's a big problem. <laughs> Let me ask you, just to illustrate this point. And we could dedicate 
literally the rest of the week to talk about the literary structure of Revelation. That is the key, I believe, to understanding Revelation, is how it was structured and how it was organized. Uh, even more than studying the symbols, the meaning of the symbols, and, and, and things like that. Knowing where the events fit in the flow is of critical importance. Uh, you know, let me ask you, when Jesus comes after the millennium, His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, right? The Mount of Olives is going to split open into a huge plain, and what's going to descend in that huge plain? The holy city of the New Jerusalem, right? It's going to descend. It's going to sit upon the earth, right? Absolutely. And then what's going to happen with the wicked? The wicked are going to surround the city on the earth with the intention of destroying the city, right? So my main point is that the holy city descends before the wicked are destroyed. It descends to the earth before the wicked are destroyed, right? But now let's notice the problem that we have in Revelation 21. Verse 1 actually belongs to chapter 20. Does the holy city descend after God makes a new heavens and a new earth, or does it descend before He makes a new heavens and a new earth? Not if you read the chronological sequence that you have here. Because it says in verse 14 and 15 that the wicked are thrown into the lake of fire. Then it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. And then he says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So, in other words, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven after he makes a new heaven and a new earth, right? <laughs> the fact is that Revelation 21, verse 1, is the climax of chapter 20. Because after the wicked are destroyed, God makes a new heavens and a new earth. But verse 2, God, see, Revelation 20 and 21 repeats the same material four times. You have four cycles, four repetitive cycles. The first cycle has to do with what's going to happen with the earth and with Satan. That's Revelation 21 to 3. And it gives you the whole summary. It says that, you know, the devil is bound for a thousand years. Afterwards, he's going to be released for a little while, and so on. The focus is upon what's going to happen to the devil and what, what condition the earth is going to be like the abyss. It's going to be without form and void during the thousand years. So 21 to 3, the center of focus is the devil and the earth. But then you wonder, you say, now what about the righteous? There's no mention of the righteous there. Uh, what about the wicked? Well, in Revelation 20, 4 through 10 the center of focus is on what the righteous are going to do during the thousand years. They're going to sit on thrones and judgment is going to be given unto them. And then after the millennium, they're going to be in the city and the wicked are going to surround the city to try and destroy the righteous who are inside. The center of focus is the righteous in this second passage. Isn't that but, the Yes, yeah, the, the problem is with those, and we're thankful for those who, who did chapters and, and verses, folks. Uh, 
Um, I'm th even even with the, a few uh, places where it's divided wrong, we're thankful because imagine trying to find a verse in Revelation with no chapters or verses. <laughs> That'd be very difficult. Uh, but but returning again to this, when you finish this second this second uh, passage that deals with the righteous, you still have questions. You say, now what about the wicked? What happened to the wicked? And what is life in the holy city going to be like? What is the, the life at the end of time going to be like? So in the third passage, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, the center of focus is upon the wicked. And then finally, in Revelation 21, verses 2 through 8, it'll give you a focus upon what life is going to be like in the holy city, what life with God is going to be like. So you have four repetitive cycles that go back to the beginning of the millennium. They take you through the millennial events all the way to what happens at the end of the millennium, but from four different perspectives. And when you have all four perspectives together, you have a complete picture of what happens before, during, and after the millennium. So, uh, you know, the, the chapter divisions uh, sometimes are, are um, not where they're supposed to be. Yes. Okay, that you know that's another myth that people have. The wicked will never attack the holy city. The wicked never attack the holy city. The wicked die attacking Satan. Read Great Controversy, the last chapter. Read Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 2 through 10, that Ellen White quotes in that last chapter. I know it's spectacular to say that the wicked get together and they form these weapons and, you know, they're attacking the city and then God fi rains fire down from heaven. But what really is going to happen if you read that chapter, and Ellen White uses Ezekiel 28 to support it biblically, God is going to show in panoramic view the whole history of the world. And He's going to show the life of each individual. And when the people see how the devil has deceived them, they now look at Him and they say, You rascal! You were the one who deceived us. You, you made us think that those inside were the enemy and we were right and they were wrong. Now we see that you're wrong. And Ellen White says that they turn on the devil. But, of course, before they're able to tear them apart, fire descends from heaven and consumes them. Yes? Yes. They began the process to plan to attack the city, but they never do. Yes. That's correct. Ezekiel 28 has it. Where it says, where it's speaking about Lucifer, and it says that the nations will draw out their swords and turn them against the splendor of your beauty. Ezekiel. It says there, Ezekiel 28, verses 2 through 10, which is speaking about Lucifer. We know that Ezekiel 28 speaks about the origin of evil. Um, and by the way, the time period after the millennium is going to be much longer than what we have generally assumed. You know, I used to think that after the millennium, you know, the wicked resurrect, God shows the, the judgment scene, and 
the wicked are burned up and that's it. But the, but the period after the millennium is going to be a significant period of time. You say, how do you know that? Well, because I carefully read the last chapter of Great Controversy. <laughs> Ellen White says, first of all, the, the wicked resurrect. The devil, first of all, holds consultation with his angels. And then he has a meeting with all the great kings of the earth. Then she, then she says that they build powerful weapons of warfare. You think they're going to attack the city with bows and arrows? I don't think so. All the infrastructure of the world has been destroyed. So it's going to take time. And then she says something very significant. She says that when finally they're ready to attack the city... She says they march across the surface of the earth with military precision. And she says about their number, she says the number is greater than all of the soldiers that have fought in every war in the history of planet earth. How long does it take to organize an army like that? To march with military precision? Yeah, absolutely. And then when they're all ready to attack the city, see, they, they do organize to attack the city. Don't get me wrong. Their intention is to take the city. But then, when they're all ready, organized, they march across the surface of the earth, then the, the panoramic view is shown above the city. Question. Yes? Why does no one enter the city of the wicked? I mean, the doors are open. Why don't they go Oh no, Ellen White says that when that Jesus descends from the earth uh, to the earth, uh, the Mount of Olives opens into a great plain, the city descends, Jesus enters with his people and the doors are shut. She says very clearly. Uh, now, another interesting thing that indicates that this is going to be much longer. How long is it going to take to examine the records of the wicked during the thousand years? A thousand years. <laughs> right? That's what Revelation 20 says. So how long is it going to take to show the wicked the record of their lives after the thousand years? A long time. And listen, and some people don't like this, but it's the truth. After the millennium, Everyone is going to be punished according to their works. That's simple justice. Right? Ellen White has some statements where she says that some people who are lost will be extinguished quickly. But she says that other people who were wicked will burn for many days. And then she says that after the last wicked person burns out. Satan will live on much longer. And the reason, there's a biblical reason for this. And li li listen, just, and I'm not, I'm not predicting this exact amount of time, you know, I, I don't know, it's gonna, but it's going to be longer than what we assume. But the scapegoat ceremony shows us that Azazel suffered the final penalty for the sins of all the righteous that were placed in the sanctuary. 
So let me ask you, if a wicked person suffers many days for his own sins, how long is the devil going to suffer for all of his own, <laughs> plus all of the ones that he led the righteous to commit? A long time. And uh, I did a study, I looked up, you know, because we have this expression, forever and ever. And interestingly enough, I looked up when I was at the seminary uh, speaking a, a few years, probably four or five years ago. Um, I only spoke uh, in the evening and in the morning, so I had time during the day to go to the James White Library. And I decided that I would go to uh, the commentators to find out what this expression forever and ever means. And you know, I found it very interesting that most of them said that forever and ever does not mean endless but it means a period of time whose end does not appear on the horizon. In other words, there is an end, but this is an extremely long period of time. And you say, well, I don't like that. What would you prefer, for God to burn everybody the same forever and ever? Is that justice? No. People will be punished according to their works. Did God show mercy towards these people? Yes. Well, sure. Did He give them many opportunities to be saved? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, when they're destroyed, they're destroyed because they begged God to destroy them. Would it be right for God to deny their, their, their choice? No. They are destroyed because of their freedom of choice. And so... Uh, you know, th this, this period is going to be much longer than what we've generally assumed. Um, and you say, well, what about when the wicked are burning? You know, they're gonna, if they're going to be burning so long, what about God's people? Ellen White says that all during the time that the wicked are burning outside, she says God's people are safe and sound and shielded within the holy city. And by the way, you know what's interesting? The, the, the non-Adventist churches have it all wrong. It's the righteous that are going to live in the eternal flames forever. <laughs> because the wicked will be consumed by the fire. If you want to see that, Isaiah 33 says so very, very clearly. It says, who will be able to abide in the devouring fire? The devouring fire is the glory of God. The glory of God that destroys the wicked saves the righteous. But in order for that, we have to have a, pop, we have to have a fireproof character. Amen. <laughs> like the three young men who were thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, we've taken a lot of detours. <laughs> Let's finish this statement by Barnes. Time's up, right? Not yet? Oh, got five minutes. Literal or prophetic? Uh, notice this statement, this is by Sice, it says, The connection between what concludes the one and what begins the other appears to be as close as it well could be, seeing that the angel who before addressed John still continues here to address him. And the new injunction, rise and measure, is but a sequel to his previous injunction, thou must prophesy again. So does he see a connection between prophesying again and measuring the temple? He most certainly does. Now what does it mean to measure the temple and those who worship in the temple? In the most holy place this is. 
Well, you know, Jesus said once, judge not that ye be not judged, because the measure that you use to judge will be measured back to you. So does measuring have anything to do with the judgment? Well, it certainly does. And what is the measuring stick? The law of God. That's right. Uh, let me read you a couple of statements here from Ellen White. Ellen White says in, great co- in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 7, 972, the grand judgment is taking place and has been going on for some time. Now the Lord says, measure the temple and the worshipers thereof. Remember, when you are walking the streets about your business, God is measuring you. When you are attending your household duties, when you engage in conversation, God is measuring you. Remember that your words and actions are being daguerreotyped, that means photographed, in the books of heaven as the face is reproduced by the artist on the polished plate. And on the next page, Ellen White speaks about a a judgmental woman in the church. She says, you can be a blessing. You can help such as need help. But you must lay down your measuring tape. (laughs) I like that. For that is not for you to use. One who is unerring in judgment, who understands the weakness of our fallen corrupt natures, holds the standard himself. He weighs in the balances of the sanctuary, and his just measure we shall all accept. And then Signs of the Times, December 29, 1887, when the judgment is set and the books opened, your life and mine will be measured by the law of the Most High. So what is measuring the temple and the worshipers? The judgment. Yes. That's the altar of incense. Is that in the holy place, not the place? Yes, but uh, this, this is an excellent question about the altar. When it says measure the altar, it's the altar of the holy place. But in scripture, the altar of incense has a most holy place orientation. Okay? Uh, like, for example, you read in Hebrews 9, it says that the censer was in the most holy place. And the reason why is because the altar of incense represents the prayers of God's people. That's why, there were, by the, that, that's why there were cherubs ascending and descending on the veil, is because it represents the fact that when we pray, our prayers go up, are taken up by angels, and they go into the presence of God in the most holy place, and then the angels, they bring answers back to, to us from God. Uh, it's the same lesson that's taught by uh, the misnomer Jacob's ladder, because it wasn't Jacob's ladder, it was the Lord's ladder. Uh, but, you know, there were angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That means that Jesus is the bridge, He's the intercessor, but the intermediaries that take our prayers and bring answers to prayer back are the angels, the angelic hosts. Uh, and, of course, uh, you, you find a beautiful symbolism of this in Luke chapter 1, where um, Zacharias is serving in the temple, And it says that he went in to offer incense before the Lord. And it says that the people outside were praying at the hour of prayer. So you have the symbol and what the symbol means in the same scene. See, what the symbol means is the prayers. And the incense represents the prayers that are going into the presence of God. So so the altar of incense, uh, even though it's technically in the holy place, the smoke went into the presence of God in the most holy place. It has a most holy place orientation. 
if you please. So what does it mean to measure that altar as well? It, it means to measure the, prayer, the sincerity of the prayers of God's people that ascend into the presence of God. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, before we're able to point out things that are not right in the church, we need to make sure that we're right. That's the first point. The second point is when we see that wrong is being done, that is not, and speak up, that's not being judgmental. Okay? Being judgmental, Ellen White emphasizes, is mainly judging people's motives, which cannot be seen. You know, and, and people have taken that to the extreme of saying, you know, people today uh, in church, they commit adultery, they get divorced and remarried, and uh, what, do, what is usually said? Well, you know, we shouldn't be judgmental. You know, we just let them live in adultery. Well, the fact is that we do have a right to speak up at that point because we're not judging motives. It can be seen. And Ellen White says that even though motives are secret, she says that open sin in the church must be rebuked. And she says that the offenders must be removed. <laughs> so are you understanding what I'm saying? So if we're seeing the things that are wrong in the church, we need to speak up. Oh, absolutely. You can't... Yes. Not by hearsay. Right. Right. You, and in other words, if, if someone is uh, going to be removed from the, from the church, for example, or disfellowshipped because of adultery, you need to be absolute certain that the individual is committing adultery. You have to have absolute proof of that. Uh, you know, and one of the reasons why we don't discipline people in the church for adultery anymore is because we're afraid of a lawsuit. So the lawsuit is more important than than preserving the purity of the church. We've gotten to that point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we need to speak up and leave the consequences with God. Amen. You know, but we need to make sure that we speak up in love. Amen. We're not disfellowshipping someone because we, we hate them. It's so that the church knows that their behavior is very serious and is not acceptable in the sight of God. Amen. Okay, time's up. Uh, sorry, uh, we weren't able to get through everything, but you have it. It is written, <laughs> so you can continue studying it. Thanks for being here and for your interest and your questions. Much appreciated. Let's have a word of prayer before we end. Father in heaven, we thank you for the marvelous light that you have given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We don't have any reason to doubt that uh, you are in control that even though the world appears to be spinning out of control, you sit on the throne of the universe in your silent and serene eternity, and you direct things according to your will. We ask, Lord, that you will help us not only to enjoy the benefits of the message that you have given us, just to keep it as in a museum, to admire it, but that you will lead us to share it with other people so that they might have the same peace and joy and assurance that we have. We ask, Lord, that you will give us boldness 
that you will give us the power of your spirit to speak up when it needs to be done. But help us to be loving and kind at the same time that we do it. And help us to get our lives in order. For we cannot throw stones if our lives are not in harmony with your will. We ask, Lord, that you will be with us the rest of this day and the rest of this uh, spiritual experience, this mountaintop experience. And I ask, Lord, that if there's anyone who has not made a complete commitment to Jesus, that this will be the place to do it before going home. And we thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless. Please pray for Secrets Unsealed.